Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you enjoy the teachings from Beth Emanuel, share the links with your friends. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends about the things you are learning at Beth Emanuel. Help us grow the message. Last week, in our reading of the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Gentile disciples in Ephesus, we saw that Paul was concerned for the Ephesian disciples that, despite their faith in Messiah, despite their love for all the saints— And despite their good works and their devout loyalty to Yeshua, they were missing some big pieces of the picture. So he prayed for them, asking God to open the eyes of their hearts so that they might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in the Messiah when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1, 18-23. Paul says, that's what you're missing. That's the thing you're failing to see. Three things. One, the hope to which he has called you. Two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And three, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward all of us who believe. Over the next chapters of the epistle, he does his best to communicate these things to the disciples in Ephesus. His concern for them seems to be that they have not taken hold of their new spiritual identity. He spent most of the first chapter describing the privilege of being Jewish and of having such an amazing heritage in Israel through Messiah. But his concern for the Gentile disciples is that they feel as if none of that applies to them, and that to truly be part of the team, to truly belong, they need to ditch their Gentile identity and also become Jewish. That's the same problem in the epistle to the Galatians. This is Paul's battle in all of his congregations. Everywhere he plants the gospel, his Gentile disciples decide they would rather be Jewish disciples. They end up coveting Jewish identity, and feeling jealous of Jewish members of the community. So Paul is always on a mission to persuade them to remain Gentile and understand their own identity. He calls it his rule for all the churches. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised, let him not seek circumcision, 1 Corinthians 7, 17 and 18. Understand that the circumcision terminology means Jewish, and we should translate it that way. Was anyone at the time of his call already Jewish? Let him or her not seek to remove their Jewish identity. Was anyone at the time of his call non-Jewish? Let that person not seek to become Jewish. There are at least two exceptions to this rule, intermarriage and reconciling a mixed Jewish identity. Intermarriage requires conversion for the non-Jewish spouse. That's a biblical law. Disciples with Jewish ancestry 
or who have been raised assuming they were Jewish, should also be given the opportunity to reconcile that identity. Outside of those reasons, Paul says, no, Gentiles should not become Jewish. This is how I know we are doing something right here at Beth Emanuel and in the Messianic Jewish movement, because we are always having the same problems that the New Testament communities were experiencing. I think much of the New Testament must be irrelevant to most of the church, because most of the church doesn't have the types of problems being addressed in the New Testament. But for us, in Messianic Judaism, we know exactly what is going on here. It's the same basic sociological problem that vexes us, the feeling of disenfranchisement that Gentile disciples seem to labor under. For most of the church, this has never been a problem because replacement theology solved the problem in the second century. Replacement theology solved the problem by teaching that Christian identity erases and replaces former identities and nationalities with a new identity, namely that of being a Christian. Therefore, Jewish Christians are no longer really Jewish. Gentile Christians are no longer Gentile, but both are homogenized into a third race that replaces the former identities. That wasn't Paul's message. That's a distortion of Paul's message that has held the church captive for most of 2,000 years. Paul's solution to the sense of Gentile disenfranchisement was not replacement theology. He did not seek to erase the difference between Jews and Gentiles. Instead, he asked God to open the eyes of hearts so that the Gentile disciples might see these three things. One, the the hope to which he has called you. Two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And three, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward all of us who believe. I want to discuss each one in brief before moving on into chapter two, because these describe for us the ultimate end of salvation in Yeshua for both Jewish and Gentile disciples. Here's a quick summary of the three points Paul is laying down. 1. The hope to which he has called you. This language of being called is typical Pauline language that harkens back to the master calling disciples to follow him. He called Simon Peter and, he, and his brother Andrew, follow me. He called James and John, the sons of Zebedee, follow me. He called each one of his disciples with that personal invitation to surrender their lives to a life of discipleship. And in Paul's opinion, Yeshua continues to do so every time someone, Jew or Gentile, is presented with the good news and the call to discipleship. This explains why he says in 1 Corinthians 7, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? So, to be called means to be called to be a disciple. The hope to which he has called you, then, means the hope of the redemption, the kingdom, the resurrection of the dead, and a share in the world to come. Yeshua says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whosoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of what he has given me but raise it up on the last day, John 6, 37-39. That's the hope of the calling. 2. 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This refers specifically to the inheritance promised to the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's covenant promises to the forefathers. One would naturally assume this inheritance to be the sole purview of the Jewish people, the children of Israel. In the next chapters, Paul will explain that Gentile disciples of Yeshua, by virtue of their connection to Yeshua, have become fellow heirs with Israel to inherit these promises. These promises begin in Genesis 12. They include blessing. I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. They include the land and the promise of a great nation to be fully realized in the Messianic era. They include all nations. I will make you a father of many nations. They include the city of New Jerusalem that Abraham glimpsed from a distance. These promises undergird the whole Torah, and they are the promises upon which the prophets expand through the whole Tanakh. This is your biblical heritage, your biblical inheritance, no longer exclusive only to the Jewish people, but also now to those called from the nations. This is the glorious inheritance we share in his holy ones, the holy people. 3. The immeasurable greatness of his power. This refers to the resurrection of the dead. God's power, Gavura, is manifested with the resurrection of the dead. We make that association every time we recite the second blessing of the Amidah. To illustrate the extent of the power, the Apostle goes on to describe the Messiah's resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. By means of God's immeasurably great power, he resurrected Yeshua from the dead, raised his corporeal human body into heavenly places, and seated him at his right hand, giving him authority above everything and everyone, above spirits and physical beings, above angels and demons, above everything in this universe, both in this age, as we will see when his kingdom is revealed during the Messianic era, and also in the world to come. This is how the apostles interpret the words, of the prophet Isaiah. When he describes the Messiah as high and lifted up and, and exalted, Isaiah 52, 13. In this exalted position, Yeshua has become the fullness of him who fills all in all, which is to say, he has been filled with the fullness of God. The immeasurable greatness of God's power is mighty enough to raise high, lift up, and exalt mortality to immortality, the finite to the infinite, the mundane to the divine, to become the fullness of God. And as Paul said earlier in the chapter, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Ephesians 1.10 the whole universe gets absorbed into this union, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all, the fullness of God in the risen Messiah. God has infused the physical creation, matter and energy, time and space, with his own being through Yeshua, uniting all things in him, in his physicality, until he fills all things in every way. 
We can't even begin to comprehend what that means. But it implies the whole nature of reality as we know it being subsumed under Yeshua. Even though we once regarded Messiah according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer, 2 Corinthians 5.16. God has taken that high, lifted up, and exalted being, his Son, which according to the flesh we knew as Yeshua of Nazareth, and he has put all things under his feet and given him as head over all things, to the community of Yeshua's disciples, which is his body. He has united the whole universe in Yeshua and subjected it under Yeshua, and he has given Yeshua to us. That's the part of the picture that Paul is afraid you might be missing, especially if we are moping around worried about whether or not we are Jewish. It's frustrating for the apostle to the Gentiles to see this flesh-level obsession with status and prestige, this never-ending navel-gazing and hand-wringing about feeling like a second-class citizen. That's why he prays that the eyes of their hearts should be opened and that they should not just see and comprehend these things, but that they should know the hope to which he has called them, the riches of their inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power. With the Apostle's permission, allow me to paraphrase his thought here. If you understood the full implication of your salvation through Yeshua, you would not be concerned with your status, your prestige, your social class or caste, your nationality or ancestry, because this stuff transcends all of that. This can be compared to the teaching in the Talmud that if Israel had not sinned with the golden calf, they would have attained immortality and divinity, as it says in Psalm 82 verse 6, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. But when Israel sinned, they forfeited that status and the divine was stripped from them. Thus it says, Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Psalm 82.7 So to our master, when they said to him, We are going to stone you for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. John 10.33 He replied, Is it not written, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came at Mount Sinai, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? John 10, 34-36 Likewise, God has predestined all Israel for adoption to himself as sons, Ephesians 1, 5. And the Gentile disciples are to participate equally in that destiny. If I'm talking over your head, don't worry about it. Paul didn't worry about talking over our heads either. It's not possible to reduce this type of mystical departure to a mundane level where it can be easily grasped, quantified, or contained. Sufficient to understand the rhetorical point that this stuff is so much higher than 
petty concerns of pride and self-importance, lifted up so much further than prestige, class, or social caste, and exalted so far beyond the need for the human ego to be affirmed and gratified, that the distinction between Jewish and Gentile disciples seems irrelevant. It's certainly not irrelevant, and it still exists, just as the distinction between male and female still exists. The Apostle dedicated most of the first chapter to making the distinction explicit. But if we grasp the scope of our salvation that culminates in the unification of all things in Messiah, distinctions that exist in this current age should seem to us inconsequential. This does not mean that the Gentile disciples have become Jewish, or that the distinction between Jews and Gentiles has been erased. If that was the case, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But it means that the Gentile disciples need to quit thinking of themselves as just Gentiles. They need to have the eyes of their hearts opened to know the meaning of their salvation. Prior to salvation, the Gentile disciples were spiritually dead and destined for death. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. This sums up the human condition. To be dead in trespasses and sins means to be separated from God, that lost human soul that has incarnated and forgotten Hashem, now living an egocentric existence like an animal, living only for the self, living only to feed the appetites, following after the course of this world. The people of the nations belong to Satan, unknowingly following the prince of the power of the air, that is, the Satan. They follow the evil inclination and the tempter, which is at work in the sons of Belial. That's how Paul characterizes the Gentile world. But he admits that the same can be said of any and every unenlightened human being, including the Jewish people who follow the course of this world. A wicked and adulterous generation, our master said, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2.3 so, if you assumed that being Jewish granted you some sort of automatic exemption from judgment or imbued you with some higher spiritual nature, a higher grade of neshama, or a more refined spiritual essence than other human beings, Paul disagrees. He throws his countrymen into the same box as the nations. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with the Messiah. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him, in heavenly places, in the Messiah, Yeshua, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in the Messiah, Yeshua. Ephesians 2, 4-7 By an act of mercy and condescension, God resurrects the spiritually dead, 
with the Messiah. A dead person cannot resurrect himself. And that's how Paul characterizes the sinner. The sinner cannot stop himself from sinning, cannot lift himself up, cannot enlighten himself or liberate himself. God is the one who raises the dead, and he has raised the community of Yeshua's disciples, both Jews and Gentiles, from that spiritual state of slumber likened to death, resurrecting them with the Messiah and raising them with the Messiah's ascension to seat them with the Messiah at the right hand of Hashem bringing them also into that unfathomable, mystical union, raised high, lifted up, and exalted. Why? As trophies. The same reason he liberated Israel from Egypt, to make his name known, so that in the coming ages, that is the kingdom in the world to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in the Messiah, Yeshua. God chose to accomplish this through sharing the favor, that is grace, that the Messiah obtained by merit of his righteousness and suffering. He shares that favor with his disciples and ultimately with the nation and also with the members of the nations who cleave to him. The story in our Torah portion illustrates the process. After Israel sins with the golden calf, breaking the covenant, God turns away from them, wants to destroy them, and offers to start over with Moses alone. Moses, however, realizes that he himself remains in God's good favor, and that he has found favor in God's eyes. So to save the nation, he leverages that favor. He identifies himself with the nation so that he can share the favor he obtained from God with the people despite the sin they committed. He says to God, This people has sinned, but you said, I have found favor in your eyes. If I have found favor in your eyes, have mercy on us, your people, and go with us and take us as your people. By favor, you have been saved. Not that you found favor in God's eyes. You didn't. You were dead in your trespasses. But Yeshua did find favor in God's eyes, and he shares that favor with you by identifying with you. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is one of the most often quoted verses in the Bible today, but it's also one of the least understood. That's because there are four key words in this verse, and all of them are commonly misunderstood. Grace. People assume that grace means an unmerited gift. It actually means merited favor. Faith. People assume that faith means believing. It actually means placing allegiance, loyalty, and faithfulness. Saved. People assume that saved means going to heaven when you die. It actually means to be rescued. And in this context, to be rescued from the wrath assigned to the nations by being granted a share with Israel. Works. People assume that works mean good deeds and righteousness. It actually means undergoing conversion, circumcision, to become Jewish. 
I've explained all of this before, so I don't need to belabor the point. But if I was to interpret these two verses according to the common misunderstandings, I would paraphrase it to say, For by an unmerited gift, you have been saved from hell through belief in a dogma, not a result of godly behavior or obedience, so that no one may boast. But here's how it should be understood. For by the favor Yeshua found in God's eyes, you have been saved from the fate of the nations on account of your allegiance to Yeshua. And this favor is not something that you obtained. It is the gift of God, not something you can obtain by becoming Jewish, so that no one can boast that they deserve it on the basis of having become Jewish. This interpretation explains what follows. For we are his workmanship, created in the Messiah Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. The workmanship in Ephesians 2.10 refers not to the idea that God fashions every human being, but rather back to the work of conversion. Saved not by your works, but by God's. God has wrought a circumcision of the heart, as Paul explains elsewhere. So, we should understand Ephesians 2.10 to mean that God circumcised our hearts, granting a new nature in Messiah Yeshua, so that we should do good works of godliness and righteousness, which God spells out in the Torah, that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from the Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in the Messiah, Yeshua, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. Ephesians 2. 11 through 13. He refers to the Gentile disciples as Gentiles in the flesh, meaning that physically speaking, as pertains to this world, they are members of the nations. They are called the uncircumcision, that is non-Jews, by what is called the circumcision, that is Jewish people and people who have undergone conversion made in the flesh by hands, to become part of the Jewish nation. But Paul would have these disciples from the nations remember that prior to their calling as disciples, they were separate from the Messiah, excluded from citizenship under the nation of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants God made with the patriarchs, strangers to the new covenant God makes with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. They were without hope for life after death, and they were without the revelation of God in this world. As Peter said to the Jewish people in the temple on the day of Pentecost, the promise is for you and for your children, Acts 2.39. All of that belongs to the Jewish people, not to the nations. As Peter said to the Jewish people in the temple on the day of Pentecost, the promise is for you and for your children, Acts 2.39. Prior to their calling, the disciples from the nations were excluded from 
and without Messiah, the commonwealth of Israel, the covenants, hope for resurrection, the revelation of God in this world. All of that was before your calling to take up the yoke of discipleship and follow after Yeshua, before you cast your allegiance with him. But now, in the Messiah, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. The Gentile disciples have been brought near to the Messiah, to identity with Israel, to the covenants, to hope for the resurrection, and to the revelation of God in this world. They have been brought near by the blood of Messiah, that is, by the merit of his suffering. As Peter said to the Jewish people in the temple on the day of Pentecost, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Acts 2.39 Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. Take on my yoke And learn from me And find rest for your soul